1: almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view, find the more you think you know, the less you really do Where are Hireside chat Show, Greg Wood and Company.
2: All right, Higher side Chatters, we have been dazzled by the stories and mystique of Tesla technology, free energy devices, electrogravitic flying saucers, and the mysterious ether for plenty of past episodes. We've heard of several exotic technologies based on these themes and their forward-thinking radical inventors, people like T. Townsend Brown, Victor Schauberger, and Wilhelm Reich, all long past dead, and their explosive genius largely reduced to a whisper. And one has to wonder, if their technologies worked, where are they now? If the ether is a real usable medium, why isn't it being used all these years later? How can it still remain such a secret? Well, people, it is out there, you just need to know where to look. Of course, the scientific and technological gatekeepers have been doing their damnedest to corral the bright minds of the scientifically inclined into the limiting pen of conventional physics, but you might not know that in modern times, brighter minds have resisted those scientific shepherds and have been studying and teaching the forbidden knowledge of ether physics amongst themselves and those who would listen all along. And one of the most knowledgeable people immersed in the secret science scene is today's guest, Aaron Murakami. Aaron has authored and produced several books, presentations, and films like The Quantum Key, The Ultimate Guide to Taboo Physics, Free Energy, and Debunking Mainstream Pseudoscience, as well as Hacking the Ether, A Course in Mind Power, Water Fuel Secrets, and several others. In 2008, he also co-founded A&P Electronic Media, which has helped to spread the word with over 40 ebooks and lectures, and is largely considered the best source of information in the free energy sciences. But his most interesting credit in the eyes of your humble host is that Aaron is the main man behind the Energy, Science, and Technology Conference. These annual conferences, several years running, are held in northern Idaho, close to Spokane, Washington, and have been attended by people from all over the world. To date, there have been about nine machines demonstrated at his conference that were over Unity, more than all other conferences combined. So this really is where the rubber meets the road, and I can't wait to get down to it. A free energy advocate, bucker of bizarro world science, and teacher of the ether, Aaron, my man. Welcome to THC.
0: Hey, thank you for having me on the show, Greg. Much appreciated.
2: You got it. This is a real treat. I have been looking into these secret science conferences because I'm sort of sick of the vague, mystical conversations around these topics. And I wanted to just sort of dive in and see what's actually out there. And when you look into the free energy conference scene, it is not long before you run into Aaron Murakami, let me tell you. And I'm glad we can get to some practical technologies and machines, but first, let's break down the conventional paradigm. You've called conventional physics bizarro world and mainstream science pseudoscience, and I like that boldness, but how do you start this conversation with people who don't realize anything is wrong? How do we make the case that mainstream science is So backwards and inaccurate.
0: Well, back in 2006, this is when my primary work was I owned a health food store. And at that time, I had already known John Bedini and Peter Lindemann and some of the other big names in the so-called free energy world. And when I put together the book, The Quantum Key, to me, one of the most important chapters in it was the chapter on open versus closed systems, because it's really a concept that's so simple that a child can understand it. And once the average person can understand that it is possible to have a system produce more on the output than what you put in, and it's not more going out than going in, it's more going out than what we put in, so common sense would say that that implies that there's extra input from somewhere else, and when the average person can relate that concept to things that are all around them in their everyday life, then it becomes a possibility, and then we can kind of build from there.
2: Right. I really do like that open systems versus closed systems thing because that has been really a big component of guys like Victor Schauberger. He talked about that a lot, that nature is a big open system and things influence each other. And I mean, the human body, everything, it's kind of an open system because you can think of the human body as like one contained thing in a meat suit. But then, you know, if you're breathing air, that's outside stimuli. If you Put yourself in a cold environment, your inner heart rate is going to raise. So really, everything is kind of connected. And that's kind of the point behind this open systems point,
3: right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when really looking at it for what it is, one can really only come to a conclusion that there are only open systems and that the whole concept of closed systems that shut off to you know everything else around it just really doesn't exist.
2: Fair enough. And so the ether itself, I mean, this is a provocative term that gets people thinking all kinds of crazy stuff. And it does seem to be one of the main missing puzzle pieces that snaps the whole thing into view. How do you define it and describe it for people?
0: Well, the ether is the fundamental stuff, which pretty much everything is made of, not only tangible items, but space in and of itself is the ether. It's not space is filled with ether but wherever the ether is that is what space is and you know if you look in this field long enough or pretty much any branch of physics that goes down into the fundamentals the ether is denied wholeheartedly by you know all the so-called experts and one thing that you know everybody who thinks that they're an expert in physics is going to point out that oh well Nicholson morley their experiment back in late 1800s with their interferometer experiment which is Bouncing different light beams around and seeing whether they get to a destination at the same time or if there's a little time delay And what they were doing was trying to see if the idea of an ether wind existed or not and their experiment failed to show that well, they weren't really setting out to debunk the ether because if you listen to a lot of the so-called experts today They're gonna to say oh well Nicholson Morley debunked the ether. They found that there was no ether And that's absolutely not even close to being true. They only failed to find evidence in favor of the ether wind model. But what's usually left out of the conversation is one of the biggest players in history in that science who was somebody named Dayton Miller. And Dayton Miller is somebody who Einstein was in correspondence with. And Dayton Miller was personally working with Nicholson himself and was very well known during that time. And it was Dayton Miller who actually did find a positive result and his experiments basically pointed out that there is in fact an ether but that's pretty much been scrubbed out of the textbooks you know i have different friends who have multiple degrees quite a few of them have degrees in physics and not one single one of them ever heard the name of Dayton Miller in all their years at the universities
2: <laughs> isn't that curious they teach einstein but not dayton miller and mickelson morley is an interesting thing for people who aren't super familiar they took two light beams and bounced them into all four directions, thinking that once they hit the endpoint, they would be off, because one of them would have been within the current of the ether, like this, uh, like you say, ether wind. You know, they thought it was a current that flowed in one direction, and that seems to be inaccurate, but you are right that not detecting something is absolutely not the same as debunking it fully. They just failed to detect it because they expected it to be measurable in a way that it's actually not measurable. Is that basically the summary?
0: It is. Yeah. And that's absolutely correct. That just because you can't find evidence for something does not mean that you're automatically debunking it. But when you look at this entire so-called free energy field, and you look at a lot of these people who are passing themselves off as being skeptics, and who are only their, quote, so-called to help. And I've seen pl- plenty of those people over the years at both Of my forums, mostly energeticforum.com, where people will come in there and they're like, Well, we just want to help you understand what you're looking at. But when you look at their attitude and their mindset and the mentality, what they take is if there's not evidence of something, then it must be false and it can't exist. Mm-hmm. And that's just completely unscientific. But they're the ones who are portraying themselves as being the most scientific. So it's completely hypocritical. So looking at what Nicholson Morley did, just as you described, bouncing these light beams around and this ether wind, what they were looking for was whether or not there was a static type of ether that just kind of sat there statically as the earth is spinning in it. And if the ether is still, but the earth is spinning, then you create an apparent ether wind relative to the earth moving through it. Just Mm -hmm. like if a child is trying to fly a kite out in the field, and if there's no wind, well, he can create his own wind by running. Mm -hmm. So that's creating an apparent wind relative to the movement of the kite, and that's what Nicholson-Morley failed to find evidence of. But that's not the only ether model, there's more dynamic type of ether, where the ether is actually in movement itself, even though the Earth is spinning through it, it's not a static ether, and these are kind of going into some of the concepts that have been validated by many, many experiments over the last century, but they don't get any recognition.
2: Right. And that was going to be my next question for you. Is basically, if their experiment was an incorrect way to detect the ether, what is the right way we can actually detect it or the right way to think about it versus the way they had it in their model?
0: Well, they want to deny the ether, but when looking at it, it basically ties everything together. Einstein's original model was like an elastic, etheric type model. And little by little, you can see through his correspondence over the years, and he was he didn't really deny the ether very much. A lot of people portray Einstein as being the big debunker of the ether because of his theories of relativity, and that's not true. What he was really saying was that the ether was not necessary for his theory of relativity to hold up, which is a big difference from saying that there is no ether. He's just saying it wasn't necessary for the ether to be there to have the effects of relativity. But when looking at it for what it is, And when we start looking into gravity and potential and the nature of energy in and of itself, we can see that the whole foundation of physics is completely false. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a bold claim, but when looking at a couple simple examples, we can see that there has to be an ether or something because the entire concept of storing potential or conservation of momentum, conservation of energy, and these type of ideas just don't hold up. Mm Mm-hmm my favorite examples is just looking at gravitational potential. Everybody knows that if you lift an object, that takes real work to lift an object. You know, if you lift one kilogram object to one meter, that's maybe one joule of energy that's dissipated. It's not just potential, it's actually energy that's burned. You know, if a bulldozer is lifting up a bunch of dirt up into the air, obviously it takes work to do that. Well, what the common idea is, is that As you're lifting that object, you're storing potential in the gravitational field. Well, just looking at it from a more mechanical point of view or a mechanically inclined point of view, well, how can you store something that you just used up? You know, when a bulldozer is using gasoline to lift a bunch of dirt up into the air, you're not storing gasoline potential in the gravitational field. You just used it up because you have less gasoline than you started with. And people are going to say, well, when that dirt is dropped down onto the ground or you lift an object up into the air and you drop it, you're getting out what you put into it. But those concepts are completely false. I mean, if you look at it takes energy to lift an object, that means what you got out of it is the lift in and of itself. If you expended X amount of joules to lift an object up into the air, what you got out of it was the lift of that object. Now, when you drop that object and it's released... What's interesting is that the common mindset is, well, you get the same amount of work out of it on impact when that object hits the ground, you're releasing what you put into it. And so if people are brainwashed into thinking that you're storing the potential in the object up into that gravitational field, and that's what you're getting out of it, then there's no need for the ether because they're making it intrinsic to the object itself as the storage for that potential. But you can't store potential that you just used up. So if you used one joule to lift an object into the air, that one joule is completely dissipated. There's nothing else left. But when you drop that object, yes, there's an equivalent of one joule of work that's going to be done in heat, deformation of the object, on impact, and so forth. Heat is created, so that's real work. That's equal to the work that it took to lift it. Well, where did that come from? And it shows that there is a gravitational potential, which has to be coming external from the object. Because if you just look at the math, well, force times distance is the Newtonian equation of how much work it took to lift an object. And MGH is mass times gravity times height says, well, that object at that certain height has the exact same potential as work used to lift it. Well, It took work to lift it, and there's work coming out of it, which means one plus one equals two. One plus one does not equal one, and that's what they want you to believe. People don't see it that way, but that's in effect what the basic third grade mathematics and seventh grade equations are going to show, is that if you took one joule to lift the object, when it drops and hits the ground, you get a joule out of it, which means a total of two joules of work were demonstrated, but you only put in one. Well, if you put in one and you have a calculatable amount of work that was done, that's double that. That means extra had to come from somewhere, which is from the gravitational field, which means it's coming from the ether or whatever external medium you want to call it. So in the Einsteinian world, all of that is stored in the gravitational field. Whereas when you look at it for what it is, it has to be coming from external from ourself, which means there is a medium that is contributing to pushing on that object, and that's where the real source of potential is, is the ether and not this fictitious idea that you're storing potential in the gravitational field. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, if you drive a car up a hill and you have one gallon of gas and you drive and drive and drive and you make it to the top of Pikes Peak in Colorado or whatever other high mountain that you're climbing up to, when you get to the top of the mountain, there's no more gasoline in the car. Right. You used up the gas. You didn't store gasoline potential anywhere. And so you have a real measurable amount of work that it took to get up the hill. And when you turn the car around and you let off the emergency brake and you coast to neutral all the way back down, well, you're obviously not rolling that car down the hill from gasoline potential that you stored because you already used it up. So where is it coming from? It's obviously not stored somewhere because you just used it up, which means you are getting extra potential from somewhere else that's able to do real work. And this is what has been in front of everybody's face for, you know, hundreds of years and You know, it's not that these Newtonian equations are incorrect. They're incorrectly being applied. Right. You know, force times distance and mass times gravity times height to determine what the gravitational potential is. Those equations are accurately giving what the numbers are, but the perspective has to change. And so if you see that you are indeed getting an equal amount and you add those together, the total amount of work is obviously common sense shows you. And any child can see it that more work is being done than what you put in, and it's coming from external. So there is an ether, and when looking at it from that perspective, the entire Einsteinian model falls apart, as does the bare foundation of fundamental physics, where they're inaccurately claiming that you can actually store potential when nothing can be further from the truth.
2: Right. So, in other words, just to make sure I got this, instead of, in the examples you're giving, instead of thinking of these things as like an action and reaction part of one process It's two separate processes, one that disrupts the equilibrium, kind of moving something off the ground. And then a second process that brings it back to the equilibrium before you put in the work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They're sequential. So the first step is you lift an object, real work is being done, heat is being created. And that's a definable, calculatable amount of work. And then if and when that object is allowed to released, then gravity comes in, pushes on the object, which is external potential from yourself because you're not contributing anything anymore. So obviously it's coming from the environment. And then that second step is that fresh gravitational potential comes in and extra work is being done and you can add them together and it's more than what you put into it. And so it's not more out than going in, it's more out than what we put in. So they are sequential, absolutely. And that's a very important point to understand, distinction.
2: Right on, right on. And so some of this stuff is a little bit hard to grasp without a visual aid, but the most helpful for me when trying to understand ether was the way gravity affects a planet. I've heard people tell me that gravity is a push, not a pull, but how does that work using a planet as an example? Tell us about this displacement situation.
0: Yeah. So the push theory, and I'm not the first one to come up with a push theory of gravity i thought i was when i came up with it because i had never heard of it everybody is familiar with the concept of a gravitational pull but in reality there is no gravitational pull it is a gravitational push and objects are pushed down to the ground and so if we look at just to get the idea of what displacement is this is volumetric displacement let's say there's a bowling ball and you put that bowling ball in a tub of water well the water is going to rise by the volume of the ball and that's very well known and that's volumetric displacement whatever the volume is that that ball is occupying is going to displace and push the water apart and that water is going to rise by the same volume as what that ball displaced it now there's something called mass displacement which isn't limited to just the surface of the ball i mean there's you know a couple holes in a bowling ball for your fingers but i mean it's not like a sponge it's solid and the water is limited to pushing back down on the ball just on a surface Well, if you have like the planet Earth, for example, the Earth has quite a bit of mass. I mean, it's a relatively small planet to a lot of different planets out there. But compared to us, it's fairly large mass and large enough to have gravitational effects. Well, as the Earth is sitting in space, it's going to displace the ether, just like a bowling ball is displacing water in a tub. As the Earth is displacing the ether outwards, The ether is trying to push back down on the earth, just like the water is trying to push back down on the bowling ball. The difference is, is on the bowling ball, the water is pushing back down on the ball, but it's stopped at the surface of the ball because it can't go any further. Whereas the earth, you know, the so-called atomic matrix of what makes up all matter has a lot of empty space compared to, you know, so-called physical space. It's more empty than it is solid. And what happens is, as the Earth is pushing the ether out and displacing it, the ether is pushing back down on the surface of the planet, but that ether is able to move through all the space of all the matter, moving back down towards where it was displaced from, which means the ether is coming from the outside and it's moving down towards the surface, pushing on every object as it makes its way back down towards the center of the Earth. It does not reach an equilibrium, And the reason is, is because I think Tesla might have been the first one to point this out, and it's kind of difficult to find this reference online, but he said something to the effect of electrons are also created in the center of the Earth, and they rise to the surface like artesian water. Well, what happens with the ether is as it's rebounding back towards the center of the Earth, there's different types of interactions where they create different particles, such as electrons, so to speak which flow to the surface of the earth so it's in constant movement as it's creating these electrons. And so as the ether is moving in the downward direction, let's just take an example of like a block of wood and a block of lead. Well a block of wood is not very dense compared to the block of lead even if they're both one cubic foot. One cubic foot would basically be the volume of space that they're taking up but they weigh very different. because the lead is under a lot more effect of gravity than the wood is because you can obviously lift up a one cubic foot block of wood fairly easily, but when you try to lift the block of lead, it's the same size, but you're not even going to hardly be able to budget. And what happens is inside the atomic matrix of each of those, there's a lot more empty space in the wood compared to the lead. So as the ether is moving from above down through both objects, there's a lot more matter there in the lead To push on there's more nucleus of the atoms in that lead for the ether to push on compared to the wood let's take an analogy of a river flowing to make it a little bit more simple if you have a river flowing and you have a one inch mesh net that you try to drag through the water that's like the wood it's more open and more spacious and the water can move through that one inch mesh really really easy with not much resistance That's why you can drag the net through the water pretty easy. That's like lifting the object up against gravity with not much effect. And that's the wood. Now, let's take a net of one millimeter mesh. That's representing a lot more dense atomic matrix in that lead. And if you try to drag that one millimeter mesh net through the river, flowing at the exact same rate, there's a lot more of that net to hit on, which means you're going to experience a lot more resistance. And that's like the ether trying to move through the lead is that it's a lot more dense and a lot more compact. Therefore, it's a lot more atoms to push on as it's moving through, and that's why you have a lot more resistance. And so looking at these ideas from a fluid type of concept, it's all like these fluid dynamics. However fluids kind of flow, this is the way that ether flows, and this is kind of a common concept that even Tesla was talking about, is that ether kind of moves like a gas or a fluid under pressure.
2: That makes sense to me. And I think this is all just a really good way to explain these types of things to people. And a net moving through water is a great example. If you swing a butterfly net through the air versus swinging a kayak paddle through the air, the resistance on the objects is similar to swinging them through water in terms of the ratio of work required between them. So it's really just like as simple as the same principles apply because the ether is like an invisible ocean. In open space, it's just less dense, less obvious. And as expected, objects that are more dense or more solid are going to take more work to push through it. The implication being that they're pushing through something, some type of medium, or why does it have that effect? And right there, we're saying that's detecting the ether to a degree. And (laughs) I think it does make sense, even though using the right language and terms is a bit slippery for me. But I think we're explaining it well, right? Sounds like I'm kind of getting it okay?
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is where the source of gravitational potential and all potential comes from. And so in the examples, if it takes, you know, one joule of work to lift an object of a certain weight to a certain height, you dissipated all that energy at the peak of the lift. And when you let go, it's a downward flowing ether, which is going to push on the mass that makes up the matter of that object. And that's what pushes it back to the ground. And that's why objects will fall back to the ground when you let go of it. So now you can see where the source of that push is coming from and why gravity is a push and not a pull and that there is an external source of potential that's going to do work because as soon as that gravitational potential, which is that downward flowing ether, pushes on the object and the object hits the ground, then work is done. And that's work that was done by potential that comes completely external from ourself. So, that's why you can add up our work to lift it, and then there's extra work being done, which is complements of environmental input, which is the ether, which comes absolutely for free. And so, they're going to say, well, you had to do work to lift it. Yeah, but we got something out of that work when we lifted it. It was the lift of the object in and of itself. And so, looking at this this displacement concept, it starts to fit one of the pieces into the puzzle which is necessary to kind of see the overall scheme of things on how the ether is there, how it works. And when you see this type of gravitational concept, you can see that these fictitious ideas of mass curves space and that you're storing potential into an object are completely ludicrous.
2: Right. And so these open systems versus closed systems points, as well as the work potential and energy points, these are fundamental understandings because we're going to get into the idea of batteries and devices that have more output than they have input or these things that people think are impossible and it's because they're thinking about energy and work and potential and systems incorrectly so these are some fundamental things that we had to get out up front but quick side note because something you said in your hacking the ether presentation really stuck with me if we revisit planets we already established that gravity is a push because the ether has been displaced by a big mass and it's trying to reoccupy that space, similar similarly to the way water would. But if I understand you correctly in that presentation, and you kind of mentioned it earlier as well, ether is in the center of the mass and is also pushing out from the middle, which sounds like you're saying that there could be a cavity in the middle of the earth.
0: That's possible. For example, one idea that Eric Dollard subscribes to is almost like a hollow earth type theory. He's been able to determine that with his so-called earth telescope technology, which is this Tesla-Alexanderson-style antenna system to look at signals from the inner earth for his earthquake forecasting technology. I might have a little bit different perspective on it, or actually I really don't have much of an opinion whether there's a hollow earth or not, But this idea that there's a solid ball of, or a molten iron core spinning around creating a magnetic field is also a completely ludicrous idea. I mean, the first thing that iron does when you heat it up is it loses its ability to retain magnetism. (laughs) Yet they have a, what, a liquid molten ball of iron spinning around creating a magnetic field? Mm -hmm. Well, molten iron can't have a magnetic field. So, you know, start looking at these kind of things. A lot of things just start falling apart. If you could clarify a little bit what you mean by moving from the inside out, do you mean when I mentioned the electrons rising to the surface of the earth or?
2: Maybe, maybe it was electrons, but you just had a series of arrows showing the ether pushing down on the planet out in space. And that this displacement is what causes the ether to push back towards the planet from all sides. And that's what people call gravity. And that's where I think about that bowling ball in water analogy But on your diagram, you also have arrows in the center pushing out. And I thought that was saying that instead of ether just pushing down from the outside, it also sort of comes together in the middle and pushes out from the core as well. Maybe it is electrons or electrons and ether, but I just found that to be an interesting detail in the model.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's going to be centrifugal forces and that kind of thing that can come into play those arrows kind of indicate that there is a constant flow of the ether and it does not come into equilibrium. And the idea, for example, like Tesla mentioning that electrons are created in the inner earth and then they rise to the surface of the earth is just showing that there can be this particle creation process of the ether in the inner earth. And so if they are rising to the surface, then that leaves kind of a void that allows the ether to constantly be moving in that fashion instead of just moving into the middle and stopping. Right. And that's why there's a constant flow. And that's really what the arrow moving in and then back out is supposed to represent.
2: Okay. Okay. And so I guess sticking with the bowling ball and water example, obviously water can't pass through a bowling ball, but these particles can actually pass through to the center of the earth, or maybe electrons are created there. Who am I to argue with Tesla? But If they create a push from the outside that we call gravity, they would probably form a similar push from the inside as well, it seems.
0: Yeah, and that kind of effect is there, and we can see that with rotating objects, for example. Bruce De Palma, who was an educator at MIT and did a lot of profound work in many fields of energy research and so-called homopolar generators, which are reactionless generators, you can draw electricity from it and it doesn't bog down the motor turning it. And he did a lot of experiments with inertia and rotating objects and looking at how we can get a source of energy from space itself. And one of the experiments he did was he had two one-inch pinballs or something, and they're both in cups. One cup is still on a platform, and one is, I believe it was being rotated by a Dremel, some type of high-speed drill, maybe about 20,000 RPM. Well, according to relativity, both these objects, if they're launched into the air, one is stationary and one is spinning. They should go up at the same rate and they should come down at the same rate. Well, in reality, what happens when that experiment is conducted is that the one that is spinning actually accelerates to a higher height faster. And then as it's falling, it starts to fall faster than the stationary one, which is falling. So it goes up faster, hits a higher peak, and then it comes down and hits the ground before the stationary one. and. That completely defeats, you know, the whole concept of relativity and a lot of things fall apart just from that experiment. That's an experiment every junior high <laughs> should be doing because it's mm-hmm. so simple. It's a very easy experiment. But in my model, what's happening is the spinning one is actually deflecting and moving the ether that it's encountering as it's moving upwards out to its outer edge, which means it's reducing the amount of ether that's moving through the spinning ball. And so not as much ether is able to hit on all the mass, which means you just reduced inertia. That's why it can accelerate higher, even though you put the same amount of work into launching both of the objects into the air. How can one go higher than the other? And the one that's spinning is deflecting the ether that would normally be pushing down on it out around to its peripheral, to its circumference. And that's why it's able to go up higher and faster. Because the stuff which causes inertia is going to be moving through the object, but if the ball is spinning and is deflecting the ether around it, not as much can push through it, so there is a reduced inertia effect. And the same thing is happening as it's falling. It's not going to fall at the normal 9.81 meters per second per second. It's deflecting the ether away from it as it's moving towards the ground. Like if a diver jumps off a diving board and as the diver hits the water, they can kind of part the water so they can go in with less resistance. And what the spinning ball is doing is it's deflecting the ether, which is flowing at 9.81 meters per second per second, away from out towards the side, like a diver splitting the water. That's what the falling spinning ball is doing is this deflecting the ether out away from it so it can actually fall faster than the normal gravitational fall.
2: Right. And this is another one of those things that when you see the visual, it's quite clear. It's a simple example where you say you could just take two rubber balls and throw them in the air at the same trajectory. But one, if you could get one spinning, you would obviously see that that has a huge effect on the arc of the throw and the way it lands. Kind of like the way I'm trying to think of this for people without the visual aid is at the quantum level, if you think of matter as more mesh-like, and you think about a net in water, if you just run a net through water, you know, you're going to get one trajectory, but if that net were spinning, well then it's going to be harder for the water to make its way through that mesh-like material because it's going to be moving in all different directions rather than just flowing straight through it. I mean, that is kind of a weird <laughs> example, but it shows that there is a material, um, a medium mm-hmm. in the open air that it has is having an effect I guess my question would be, is there a difference between ether inside and outside of our atmosphere?
0: I don't believe so. It's going to be the same type of ether. But the example you point out with a net just moving through the water, or if you rotate that net and move it, you're going to get more resistance. It's like if you look at, say, like a regular household fan, if you look at the blades and the fan is off, you have all this open space, you know, where the blades are not. If you took like a little, I don't know, little stick or something, you could launch it like a little arrow through that space with the fan blade just sitting there still, but if you turn that fan on high, for example, as it's spinning, that blade is occupying more space per unit of time, and it's going to be a lot more difficult to take that same exact arrow and launch it through that empty space. And that's similar to the analogy that you made of a net that's still in a net that's rotating. Right. And or you take a little rubber ball or something and you throw it through the space between the blades of a fan that's rotating very, very slow or not at all, and then you turn the fan on, it's going to be very difficult to throw that ball through it. And that's a very good analogy of exactly what you're explaining.
2: Yes, your fan analogy is really great because it's easy to, to visualize for sure. And so I guess, let me ask you this, if I'm part of a cabal at the top of the pyramid that runs the world, hypothetically, why do I want to keep ether physics a secret? Why do I want to keep that out of the schools and out of the scientific community?
0: Well, what it does is it shows the possibility that there's an infinite source of potential that can be tapped anywhere at any time. And if people are brainwashed into not believing that there's the ether and that if you lift an object and you're storing potential energy in the object itself, that means there's no free environmental source of input anywhere and you have to constantly be relying on a finite energy source or a consumable energy source, whether it's gasoline or whatever else it happens to be. Those are all going to be necessary as long as all there is, is source potential that you're putting into the system yourself. And if nothing can come from the environment, then you're always going to have a fixed amount that's just going to dwindle down until it's gone. They have to turn around and repurchase it. But if people can open up their minds to actually see the possibility that extra input can come from the environment in whole or in part, then that's when everything kind of falls apart and we're no longer dependent on somebody to just supply it to us. These kind of concepts of these open systems, is really a simple concept people have these type of systems all around them because in fact that's the only type of systems that there are if there's a child flying a kite for example and they're out in the field if there's enough wind blowing child can get the kite into the air tie it off on a bench walk away and it'll continue to fly as long as the wind is blowing well if we look at simple concepts like this obviously that kite is able to fly and it's not even coming from any energy that the kid put in it obviously the kid had to put some energy to get it to get into the air Because what ties together the concept of open systems and how these type of machines and different technologies can produce more than what we put into it is it's very simple. If the child puts in one part work to get the kite into the air, and that kite is flying for a certain period of time, and during that period of time, free wind from the environment comes in and flies that kite, that's 10 parts input. One from the child, nine from wind, that's 10 parts work of input. Well, if it's a bad kite design and there's whatever losses are associated with this kite flying experience for a certain period of time, let's just say half of all that input is completely wasted in, you know, friction, heat resistance, bad kite design and so forth. That means 10 parts went in, one from the child, nine from wind, 10 parts went in, five entire parts of that input is completely wasted in losses. Which means only five parts in actual kite flying was actually done. So ten went in, five parts of intended flying work were done. That's only fifty percent efficiency. And fifty percent is horrible efficiency, even though, you know, most cars on the road are gonna be between twenty and thirty percent. Solar panels are about twenty percent. And so even though fifty percent is bad, it's still, you know, two, two and a half times better than most automobiles or, or solar systems. So 10 parts went in, five parts work was done, 50% efficient. But what gets interesting is when we look at the perspective of how much work was done compared to what the child put in. Well, obviously, five parts work were done in flying work, but the child only had to put in one. Five divided by one is 500%, which means the child put in one part work, but five times amount of work was actually done, which means he just got a 500% return on his investment. And that's five times over unity, so to speak, or he got five times more work than what he had to put in. See, so it's not more going out than going in. It's more going out than what he put in because that kid leveraged free environmental source potential. And all he had to do was put in one part work, nine parts of free wind contributed to the system that he really did not have to pay for. It came free from the environment. And the total amount of work done after all the losses is 500% more than what he put in. If anybody listening to this has a refrigerator in their kitchen, they have a free energy device. That refrigerator is actually producing about two times more work than what you're paying for at the wall. It's a completely legitimate open free energy system that's operating over unity. It's a heat pump. So what happens is if somebody, for example, is spending 100 watt hours in electricity from the wall, To turn the compressor, well, the compressor is circulating this refrigerant fluid in these different compression and expansion stages in that heat pump, in that refrigerator. And what happens is that in a refrigerator, you're not putting cold into the refrigerator, you're removing heat. You know, there's a big difference. Well, if you take X amount of heat and you move that, that's real work to move heat around. But if you calculate how much heat in total is moved compared to the electrical equivalent, what you're drawing from the wall, You find that you have about twice as much work being done. You're paying for 100 watts for simple numbers and electricity from the wall, but you're getting about 200 watts worth of heat movement over that same period of time, which means you're getting 200% more work accomplished than what you put in. So it's not more going out than going in. It's more work being done than what we contribute. We contribute 100, but what happens is heat in the environment moves absolutely free to a lower potential or to a Cold source, and we don't really have to pay for that heat movement. It just happens automatically. And so that's a simple example of a machine that everybody has that's a free energy machine. See, like in a kite flying analogy, it's 50% efficient. Well, efficiency is one measurement that people are familiar with. Well, if you take the total work, five times flying work divided by the one that the kid put in, it's 500% more. Well, Five divided by one is 5.0 and what that 5.0 is is that's called a coefficient of performance coefficient of performance or cop for short is the ratio of the total work compared to what we put in and we don't include the free environmental input well in conventional engineering and science and physics it's completely acceptable for a heat pump to have a cop or a coefficient of performance over 1.0 Your refrigerator might be 2.0. There's heat pump hot water heaters. So instead of a hot water heating element in your boiler room or whatever you have to heat your water, if that electrical water heater is operating at a COP about 1.0, it's about 100% efficient because 100% conceptually of that electric current moving through that heating element is being turned into heat. Typically, heat would be considered waste, but since we want the heat, That's the work that we want. So an electric hot water heater is 100% efficient at converting that electricity to heat. It really isn't, but that's what's commonly believed. It's close. Mm -hmm. But if we look at a heat pump, there's one called a Stiebel Eltron. I think that's the best one on the market. It's a German one. And it only takes maybe about maybe 600 watts of electricity to produce maybe about 2,500 watts of heat of hot water. I know, depending on the ambient temperature... It has a COP of 2.4, which means if you have one of these heat pump hot water heaters, you can produce 2.240% more hot water than the electricity you're drawing from the wall. So, it's acceptable to have a heat pump that can be over 1.0 COP because it's understood heat moves for free towards a lower potential, but as soon as you start talking about over 1.0 COP devices and machines that are not heat pumps, that's when you know what hits the fan and you know they cry foul oh you can't have that it's totally impossible it's perpetual motion and all this stuff so then what you see is this degenerate mentality breaking down claiming that oh well that type of process can only happen selectively in these systems but they can't happen in other systems which is completely ridiculous and so they're only selectively allowing over 1.0 COP to apply to heat pumps but they don't want you to understand that you can have over 1.0 COP in mechanical systems, in electromagnetic or electrical type systems, or other systems. But it's really common sense that those type of systems do indeed exist, and they're all over the place. If you look at every solar system, you put in zero, and 100% of the input is coming from the sun. Well, the COP is conceptually, it's considered to be an infinite COP because anything that it's producing is infinitely greater than nothing that we have to put in. If you look at a wind power generator on a wind farm, every wind power generator is operating at a coefficient of performance of infinity. It's an infinite COP because any electricity that that wind generator is producing is infinitely greater than zero input from an an operator because we don't have to put anything into it. We don't have to put anything into a solar system. So obviously there's an over 1.0 coefficient of performance on solar panels and heat systems or solar panels and wind generators. And so it doesn't only apply to heat systems. And in fact, there are mechanical systems and there's electrical or electromagnetic systems that are over 1.0 COP.
3: Hmm.
2: I mean, this is all really interesting. So Obviously, you're saying that we have real world examples that we take for granted. They've just compartmentalized them and made us think that these same principles couldn't apply to other systems, and that's just wrong. And it really is kind of flipping the model. And it's why the open systems philosophy is so important to get out there because you're kind of breaking down where work comes from. And if the work didn't come from you and it was input from environmental sources, then that's gonna to contribute to a net gain in the end. But because we think of things as these closed systems, I guess we're not pulling in those other energy sources or factoring them into the equation. And that's kind of the problem because we have this ether everywhere and it is part of our environment and it is tappable. And without acknowledging it, it's very hard to explain to people why you can get more out of something than you put in. Is that
0: the gist? Yeah. and. People actually take part in open systems and they don't even know it. I mean, anybody who's a farmer or a gardener, if you plant a seed in the ground, you put a little bit of work into it. But if you come back, you know, however long later, let's say it's a fruit tree or something and you plant a cherry pit. And then, you know, a couple of years later, you come back and here's this tree with thousands of cherries on it. Well, all that free input is, you know, you got sunshine, you got rain, you got nutrients from the soil, you got air. We're not paying for any of that. It took just a infinitesimally small amount of work to put that pit in there, but you walked away, and then nature took over, and all these environmental inputs of you know heat, light, water, nutrients, air, and all this contributed to growing that cherry tree. Well, as the roots are growing, they're expanding and they're pushing against soil, creating heat and resistance, and moving up against gravity. And you got millions and millions and millions of times more work were accomplished growing that tree compared to the small almost insignificant amount of work that it took to plant that seed. And so everywhere you look, when people really start opening their eyes to looking at it for what it is, there's nothing magical. You know, growing a cherry tree is not perpetual motion. It's a completely legitimate over 1.0 COP free energy system. You put in a little bit, free environmental input comes in. So the total amount of work done can be more than what we put in. And again, the distinction is not more than going in it's more going out than what we put in because obviously there's extra input from somewhere else.
2: Mm -hmm. So the, the lesson really is that we should harness our environment in all cases and work with it rather than against it in the brute force, explosions, combustion type of ways that we do now because we could go with the flow and use a lot less energy, expel a lot less energy. So We got into that Ether Science 101 stuff. We got that out of the way so people can start thinking in the proper context. But I want to ask you about the free energy conference scene where these principles are put into action. We hear these conspiratorial stories from over the years of people showing off devices only to end up dead a few years later or the device is stolen or some type of drama unfolds. Some kind of wrench is thrown in the works. How often does this happen? Could you give us a a brief history, perhaps, of the alternative science conference scene? How long has this been going on?
0: Well, this past July, every 4th of July weekend is when I organize a conference near Spokane, Washington, here in Hayden, Idaho. This is where John Bedini lived and worked, and his involvement with conference goes back to the 80s, for example, and, you know, with suppression and different things there was one conference it might have been the 1984 Colorado Springs conference which was kind of a famous one where you know everybody who's everybody was there and there was a lot of different things demonstrated John demonstrated one technology which I believe was a battery charging technology where the batteries basically kept themselves charged up while it was powering some lights and there was somebody there named I think his name was Jim Watson and this Jim Watson made a replica of John Bedini's so-called 1984 free energy machine. John had written this little book that described this motor generator concept that could produce work while it kept itself charged up. Well, what John did was he always kept these things kind of small scale, and what happened was this Watson, he made a large scale one where it fit on the back of a truck and this thing was really really big and it was powering loads while it kept all those batteries charged up. Well, Watson disappeared from the scene, and the story is that he was given an offer he couldn't refuse, and at some point, John Bedini, he had some visitors show up in some suits, put him against the wall, and pulled out a gun on him, and they told him that he's going to be sticking the gasoline for the rest of his life, and once that happened, John was very cautious about how he approached this whole subject, where he kept everything small-scale and little proof of concept models, because if he was going to build anything too big, then it looks like, well, he's going to put it into practical use and he's going to be competing with whatever else is out there. And the so-called powers that be do not want that. I mean, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's business for them. They don't want to have anything jeopardize their, you know, (laughs) pretty much guaranteed and secured renewable income. You know, we go to a gas pump every month and we fill up and they don't want anything that's going to change that. And, you know, these type of technologies certainly can change that. Mm-hmm. That was one of the examples that happened to John. And it wasn't until about 20, let's see, my first conference was in 2012. I think in maybe 2010, 2011 or so, there were two conferences that Peter Lindeman and I helped to promote. Somebody who was putting these conferences on downtown Coeur Idaho. Coeur d'Alene is a city about 45 minutes from Spokane, Washington, where I'm from. And at this resort, there was two conferences back to back, you know, one year right after another. And this person was kind of doing some shady business behind the scenes. And so John Bedini cut him off, booted him out because, you know, he was stealing and some other stuff. But at that conference, John Bedini showed several devices and he built a large so-called energizer, which I named it the Ferris wheel because it looked like a mini Ferris wheel is maybe, I don't know, 10 feet in diameter had three large coils at the bottom of it, and it was running on a 36-volt battery bank, charging a 36-volt battery bank while it was producing a lot of this mechanical work to turn this wheel, and I can't remember how many foot-pounds of torque this thing would put out, but it was quite a bit. It would break your arm if you tried to stop it, and what happened was this thing pretty much ran all weekend, all two or three days, and the input battery, the 36-volt battery bank, it never dropped. It stayed charged up, and the batteries on the output kept getting overcharged. And you had to periodically stop this thing to keep it from overcharging those batteries. And so that machine, I think it was calculated to have a COP of about 3.0, which means it's able to put about three times as much charge into the battery in addition to the mechanical work compared to what's leaving the input. Even though the input battery stay charged up, you can still measure that there's a certain voltage there and a certain current which is flowing, the electron current. So you can measure that there's something leaving the battery, even though the battery is getting a kickback, so it gets itself to be charged up. Well, these two conferences was the first time John Bedini came out and to the public like this, the first time since I think the early eighties. So it's about I don't know, thirty years or something like that. And so after he booted this one shady character out of his life and out of his company and everything, who's still out there bootlegging a lot of John stuff. I approached John and wanted to start doing these conferences. And I talked to him. And the first conference, I think, was in 2012. And we did this at a little uh, Eagles Lodge in the middle of nowhere in in Hayden, Idaho. The reason we had it there is because John's company is in Hayden. He lived in Hayden. And he was one of the trustees at the Eagles Lodge which kind of a non They do a lot of charitable work in the community and that kind of thing. And they had the perfect setup to be able to have a conference. And so we did it, and and it was a success. That I think was in 2012. And in this past July, that was the seventh conference that I've helped organize. The first couple, it was originally called the Bedini Lindemann Science and Technology Conference. And then after a few years, we wanted to make it a little bit more generic. So then we called it the Energy Science and Technology Conference. And through those seven conferences, there's been about nine different machines that were demonstrated to everybody, which had an over 1.0 COP, which if you look at nine different machines producing so-called over unity, more work is being done than what the operator puts in. That's more than all other conferences in this category combined Hmm. that I know of.
2: Well, that's quite impressive, man. I mean, nine machines, and I understand that, you can make something that isn't necessarily ready for a mass production or commercial rollout. But with nine, you got to think maybe a couple would be ready. What is the holdup when these things have been made since the 80s? I mean, obviously, they're going up against uh, the powers that be and all that. But why can't with a Kickstarter or something, why can't we get this stuff out to people so they can see that it works despite their conventional knowledge?
0: Well. A lot of it on upscaling, some of these things are not going to be very practical. For example, you know, the Bedini SG, it works. SG stands for schoolgirl motor, which little 10-year-old girl at a science fair back around 1999 built a little Bedini Energizer, and it kept itself charged up throughout the science fair, and she won the grand prize, and he called it the schoolgirl motor to poke fun at people, you know, (laughs) seasoned engineers who couldn't even get it to work. And so that's where the SG name comes from. Scaling it up, they can be over unity. When you include the mechanical work of the wheel turning if you put a load on it and you calculate what winds up in the output batteries, it's over 100%. The thing is is if you really want to scale it up to power your whole house, for example, on a large battery bank, to have two battery banks where one is powering the SG and some other stuff while the second battery bank gets charged up and when one goes down and the other is charged, you swap the banks. Well, if you look at the time, money, and effort that it takes to buy all those battery banks and wind all those coils and do all that, it makes more financial sense to just go with solar, for example. Mm. That doesn't mean it's a bad idea to go that route, but there's other so-called free energy technologies that are more practical, I believe. For example, one of the most profound technologies I've ever seen with the highest COP was one developed by Jim Murray. Jim Murray has been into these type of technologies for many, many years. He's one of the most gifted, brilliant, genius engineers ever in this field. He's one of the most important engineers alive today. And he has developed multiple mechanical and electrical systems that produce more work than what you have to put into it. At one of the conferences, he did a co-presentation with Paul Babcock one of my good friends here in Spokane, Washington, and Jim and Paul met, I think, at the 2012 conference, our first conference, and they've been friends ever since. And one of their each one of them had a technology that was virtually identical to each other in every single way. And when they found that out, it blew their minds because they've been on this parallel path for so many years that they met at the conference to find out they're working on the same thing. Well, one of Jim's technologies is called SERPS, S-E-R-P-S. Switched energy resonance power supply. And they had one model at the conference that they brought where the net loss on the input was about one watt something and it was lighting 50 watts of bulbs. Mm. That's about a 5,000% increase or gain. It's a COP of almost 50, 50 times more work being produced than the net loss from the input. Now, Distinctions are always important because it really defines what's really going on. And it's not more than going out than going in. It's more work being done than what they have to provide. But another distinction is, is that it does not mean one watt is lighting 50 watts of bulbs because that's just not going to happen. What it means is 50 watts is leaving the power supply, lighting 50 watts of incandescent light bulbs. But the way the system works is that it's able to return that 50 watts, and with a little bit of loss, it might be maybe 49 watts, is coming back in the opposite direction to light the bulbs at 49 watts, for example, and that's returned to the source, so the net loss is going to be 1 watt. So it's not 1 watt lighting 50 watts, it's 50 watts lighting 50 watts of bulbs, and it's lighting the bulbs at maybe 49 watts on the return, so the net loss is 1. And what that means is that it only costs you one watt to light 50 watts of bulbs. Now, that was a solid state unit. You do plug it into the wall, so it's hard for people to believe, okay, well, how do I know what's really going on with the circuitry? How do I know it's really doing that? And it's not just a trick. Well, you could obviously measure what's leaving the wall with like a kilowatt meter or anything like that and to see that, you know, there's about one watt being used while 50 watts of bulbs are lit up. Well, A non-solid state version of that technology was done on a gas generator set. And, you know, this is one of the most exciting technologies I've ever seen because not only is it practical, it's something that has a very, very high coefficient of performance. On a gas generator set, let's say you're using gasoline to power a motor and this motor is turning a generator. Well, if you put a load on that generator, light bulbs, whatever it happens to be, The light bulbs are going to light up. The generator is producing electricity, but it's also going to bog the engine down and it's going to force it to burn more gas to keep up with that load. And so that's a reaction generator, which means it's going to bog down the prime mover. Well, a typical gas generator set, I don't know, they're operating at maybe about 60% efficient. So about 60% of the gasoline you're burning is actually going to producing the work. Well, what's interesting is that the way that this system works is as the generator has this alternating current output, it's got voltage going up, then it's going down to zero, and then it's going negative, and then it's coming back up to zero, and then it's going positive, and so forth. And this is what a typical alternating current AC sine wave looks like. Well, as the output ramps up to positive, the electricity is going to light the bulbs, And what happens is there's capacitors capturing most of what's moving through this system on the backside. But as the voltage starts to drop, that capacitor, the capacitors are discharged backwards through the light bulbs, and it's done in a novel way where that voltage is stepped up and is at a higher voltage than what left the generator. And when that higher voltage is put back to the generator as the voltage is following, it actually turns that generator into a motor for just that one quarter cycle of that AC wave. And what that means is if you're able to turn that generator into a motor for just that moment, you just negated the network that that generator is loaded up by. Because that means half the time it's a generator and half the time it's a motor. And what that does is if 50% of the time the generator is generating, and 50% of the time the generator is actually turning into a motor, the moment that it turns into the motor, it unloads the motor turning it, which means that that motor is going to see almost no network being done. Because if the generator is a motor, at that moment, the motor turning it doesn't have to do any work to turn that generator. Mm -hmm. And so what it does is it causes a net effect that there's really no load on that generator So the motor is just sitting there turning the generator, and it's idling. One of the tests that Paul Babcock did at his shop with that system was on an old gas generator set. You can't use these kind of crappy newer generators these days that you can buy at you know Harbor Freight or wherever. You have to use like one of these old Onan generators or something that's putting out a good, clean sine wave. If people knew what kind of AC was coming out of these modern generators. It's going to be no surprise why it's going to burn out refrigerators and computers and all this kind of stuff if they use those kind of generators for very long. But on one of these older generator sets that has a clean sine wave output, they have the circuit running on there and they had a graduated little tube so they could measure exactly how much gasoline is going into that generator. Well, on the first test, they just measured how long would X amount of gasoline idle that engine with no load. And so they took the measurement of how long it would run that generator at idle on that amount of gas. Then what they did was they hooked up Jim's SERPs circuit to it, and with the exact same amount of gas, they turn on the generator and they lit 1,500 watts worth of incandescent light bulbs. As it lit those 1,500 watts of incandescent light bulbs, you can hear the generator fidgeting a little bit, and then it smooths out, and 1,500 watts of light bulbs are being lit, and the generator goes back to idle. It's idling and it doesn't even know that you're loading it. That it was one of the most profound technologies that I've ever seen or heard of, and it's for real. And at one of my conferences, Jim did get introduced to somebody who was kind enough to help financially support the project. Jim has since been funded and is currently working on that right now. And so to me, that's the number one top contender for a practical So called free energy system that can actually do practical work at a large scale. I mean, 1500 watts of bulbs and the generators idling is profound beyond belief. The one thing about it is it works on resistive loads, like a heating element producing heat or lighting an incandescent light bulb. You know, incandescent light bulb about 90% is turning into heat while maybe 10% is light. But the point is, is that it works on the resistive loads. I don't know if he has figured out how to power inductive loads which means like a compressor and a refrigerator which has a little motor in it anything with a electromagnetic coil that you're powering is called an inductive load while a, like a heating element is a resistive load so it does work on resistive loads I don't know that it can work on inductive loads but in any case lighting 1500 watts of bulbs running at idle is I mean that's game-changing beyond belief mm-hmm. and it's for real and that's one of about eight different technologies that have been demonstrated at this conference, the Energy Science and Technology Conference.
2: Right on. Well, that's a really great detailed description. And of course, there are parts that are a little over my head. I am a simple stoner host of a podcast, but I know it is that time. that I, I always get, it's a little bittersweet when something really lights a fire under me right at the time that we are supposed to close out. But that's the way it goes. Maybe we can do this again sometime. Yeah, I would love to. That's awesome to hear. And so one thing we did want to touch on before we ended this thing is for people who remember my interview with Eric Dollard, that was really you who helped coordinate that interview with him. And that episode stands out as one of my favorite shows I've been able to do for this type of thing. I know Eric has had a sort of rocky life and you're pretty close with him. How is he doing? Is his work coming along? Is there some update you could give the people who've probably wondered what's the deal with Eric?
0: Yeah, he's doing better. I don't know if you know, a couple years ago, he did come down with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So that's straightened out. He's taken some supplements, keeping his platelet counts up and that kind of thing. So health-wise, he's doing pretty good. Had some dietary changes and stuff. As far as the work with the nonprofit. One good thing is the balance to pay off the building, which I've helped to raise some funds over the last several years to pay off this building where he does a lot of the work at. The balance is like eleven hundred bucks or something like that. So I expect in about one month for that to be paid off, which is a huge, huge step for EPD Laboratories Inc. You know, which is a 501C3 nonprofit charitable organization to further the electrical sciences, and of course, Eric is the man behind that. So the building's about to get paid off. He's been doing a lot of writing. We're going to be publishing a lot more of this, not only as ebooks, but also on Amazon as paperbacks. And as far as the seismic project itself, there's a shack up on top of the hill at the end of all these long distance lines for the earthquake forecasting equipment that's been put together. And I recently met somebody who is interested in getting all the quotes to make this little building on the outside of this mine. There's a mine on this property that we have the right away to that actually synchronistically it just happened to have uh, three seismographs on an xyz axis and <laughs> had no idea that was even there when eric picked this location because of these lines that were on there to pick up these earth signals just happens to be a mine with seismographs that a certain university rid off as being obsolete and the whole thing got passed over to epd labs i mean that's crazy synchronicity who would have thought that could have ever happened and it just happens to be in the exact place that they need to be in proximity to the lines. And so he's doing a lot of writing right now. We're in the process of getting somebody who can get the quotes for the lines and this building that will encase the front of the line with the seismographs because all that data has to come into, for lack of a better term, I guess you could say kind of like a switchboard kind of thing, which will route all these signals to the shop. And the goal is to actually put that online somehow so people can, in live time, watch this earth signal data over like a smartphone app or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what the goal is. He just gave a presentation at the recent conference which anybody interested in that they can go to energyscienceconference.com and hopefully here in a couple months we'll start to post the details on next year's conference. But he gave a conference on uh, the history, theory and practice of the electrical utility system, but the big thing that you might be interested in interviewing him on is that it was about kind of leads up to showing how the grid has apparently been intentionally degenerated because at one time the grid was EMP proof as it was built according to like Bell Labs type standards and this kind of stuff. Well, it's actually been degenerated in a way to where it's actually turned into a huge antenna that will cause any damage by an EMP to be amplified exponentially to deliver it right into everybody's homes. And this is something that's of serious concern. He lays the whole thing out, and more people need to know about that. And that's what his most recent presentation was about, which is about a five-hour presentation, by the way. And I'd be happy to send you links so you can look at that if you like.
2: Absolutely.
0: But that's been his most recent focus.
2: Wow. And man, so right on. Well, before we really call it in here. Also, please inform the good people about your websites again and how to better educate themselves after this kind of Cliff Notes crash course that we gave them today.
0: Sure. So, the publishing website, as you mentioned at the beginning of the call, about 40 books and videos. I think there's actually maybe about, I don't know, 60 or 70 ebooks and downloadable videos. Most of them are presentations from the conference. That website is emediapress.com. If anybody is interested in the energy conference, energy science and technology conference, it's energyscienceconference.com, And on emediapress.com, there's links to all the rest of it. You know, there's a manufacturing, pretty much one of the only real Rife machines that was developed by John Bedini and a few other things. So there's links to all that. The synchronicity report is on emediapress.com. And if you go through the blog, that's where you can see where all the different releases from the conference and a bunch of other pretty interesting stuff. And so, you know, it's been an honor and a privilege to be able to work with people like Roger Estes, John Bedini, you know, Peter Lindemann, Eric Dollard, Paul Babcock, Jim Murray, you know, who I consider and many people consider the pioneers of the modern day so-called free energy and Tesla science movement. And they're the proven winners over many, many years, and that's why I like to have very close relationships with these people because their work is very profound. I want to do everything I can to support it. I appreciate you having me on your show to further the awareness of the work. Much appreciated.
2: Heck yeah, man. You are definitely an interesting cat. And so the next conference, it's not until next summer and it's in Idaho as well?
0: Yeah, here in a couple of weeks, I'll have the exact date. Most likely it will be in one of the weekends in July of next year. It will be at the Hayden Eagles Lodge in Hayden, Idaho which is about maybe a 55 minute drive from the Spokane International Airport. And this year differed from other years where other years it was a Friday, Saturday and Sunday which mostly focused on the energy technologies and science. This year I added a Thursday, so it's Thursday through Sunday. Thursday all focused on mind body science cool. and Friday, Saturday and Sunday was the typical energy conference and next year I'm looking at maybe having a 5-day conference where Thursday will be mind body Friday, Saturday, and Sunday will be the main energy conference, and then Monday will be optional for anybody who wants to stick around, which will be focused on business. Because a lot of people who have inventions and stuff do not really have the wherewithal to know how to raise funds, how to get into manufacturing and do prototypes and outsource that stuff, and you know, really bring their own projects to fruition. And I know a lot of people in the right places who can help with that element of this, which is missing in this field because. Most people have an invention. They have no idea what to do. And so we, you know, we'd like to change that so people can be, you know, more self-sufficient and actually get their stuff out into people's hands, which is one of the big movements that I've been gearing towards in the last year is that I'm with Eric Dollard and a couple of the partners. We're going to be manufacturing the Lakovsky multi-wave oscillator, which there's a link on that on immediatepress.com for anybody who's interested. But my goal by the next six months is that I'll have another I don't know, maybe four or five devices into production because I want people to actually get into their hands a lot of things that we've been talking about for many years. And so that's where a lot of my focus is shifting is into the manufacturing and actually getting these things out there.
2: Excellent. I think that's exactly the right focus. I mean, that's been my frustration is where is all this stuff? But very exciting. Man, again, thanks for furthering my understanding. It's been real enlightening getting into your work and talking to you today. I know there's so much other stuff going on to talk about water time deconstructing three dimensions inertia plasma ignition but we got a full um full show for next time i guess but thanks again i wish you continued success and enjoy the day man
0: hey thank you very much thanks for having me on your show and I uh, look forward to doing it again sometime
2: for sure all right man take care
0: take care thank you so much
2: you got it holy hell and hallelujah people aaron murakami Remember the name! Top-notch guest, I would say. Honestly, this was exactly the kind of show I was looking for, way closer to the source of the information. I think he did a great job breaking down Ether Physics 101. Obviously, you have to undo some learning, torch up some sacred cows, and reframe and redefine a lot of terms and concepts... I don't really know much about energy or conventional batteries or many of the things that we talked about, so I almost have an advantage by being such a blank slate. At least that's what I tell myself. But how perfect was Aaron for this? Because the conference scene is something I really wanted to hear about, and I will probably attend this conference next year. Why not? I've gone to conspiracy cons where speakers just talk about the idea Of this stuff existing and being suppressed, or they throw it way back in the past. Well, let's go to where the engineers are, where the models are. If I ever have a higher side con, this would be a pond I would fish in for sure, I'll tell you that. But it's similar to the lesson I learned with the forming of a few of the THC communities. You know, it sounds fun, but this show is kind of just an experience between you and I and the guest. And when we all congregate somewhere, That's where things can get a little messy. That's where we can be targeted. And, you know, not even for anything dramatic, but just marketed to even as a demographic. I don't like that. But if we're all having this experience in isolation, in silent lucidity, as that 80s band used to say, we're decentralized. And that has a lot of advantages. Same with these conferences. It's a bigger risk just to get together together And dedicate a weekend to this stuff, getting all the leaders and best thinkers in one room. It's like anything. You don't even have to go full blown capstone cabal on this one. You think GE or any of the big energy companies can't contract out someone to make this problem go away when it starts gaining steam? I've seen walkthrough videos of the dark web where they have assassins for hire for 50k. I'm only saying we've heard the stories, and I find this kind of thing to be more dangerous than a lot of topics because it hits them right in the pocketbook. Yes, money is a construct, and enchantment on the masses. It has no value, and it's one big reptilian energy suck. But on another level, money matters. And it's not just money, but control matters. And there is an ironclad quarantine around this stuff because they don't want us casting off those yokes. Those goddamn energy yokes. But have you noticed a the theme... To the shows this month, Corey Daniel, Jim Chesner, Aaron Murakami. It's all about, let's pause on the theorizing and the speculating. What is out there? What does a local expert have to say about the Arizona desert? What is this stuff on these radar scans in Helsinki? Where are these devices we've heard about? How are they possible? Who's making them? I'm trying to go for it, you know? Because sometimes I think we get caught up in a... Did you know, educational circle jerk, and we're doing a lot of talking, which, go figure, an interview-based podcast is giving you a lot of talk, but I'm just saying I'm trying to push up closer to some type of breakthrough, to something, somewhere. I'm just feeling around in the dark. It's a lofty goal, yeah, and we'll probably be back to talking about underground cloning centers and black goo before you know it. I tend to... Change direction a lot. You never know when a 180 eighty's coming. I'm the John Kerry of conspiracy podcasting, the cool John Kerry of conspiracy podcasting, I like to think, if that's even possible. Look, we've been doing this a long time, and I know that I say a lot of dumb things, but as long as I say fewer dumb things than my competitors, then I guess I'm all right. But the point is that you got a lot of information today. Some of it over my head is kind of new. You know, that's going to happen. I think we can all agree that it's interesting food for thought, and we're better for knowing a little bit more about this subject, but for some people, it's going to be more than that. Some people are actually going to buy Aaron's book and presentation, or they're going to go and look up some of these names that we dropped, some of these breadcrumbs, and something's going to light a fire for some people, and they're going to push this further. And I hope there is one THC that does that for everyone. Nine out of ten shows you might just say, wow, that's really fascinating, but i got to get this TPS report done before I lose my job. It's a part of life. But I hope that some of these shows will resonate with you so much that it does provide a catalyst for moving the needle forward or putting some yardage on the board or whatever they do in hockey. Maybe something jumps out at you because it's local and you can actually go take a look and go down a... Personal rabbit hole. I'm just saying, I've had some whiskeys and I'm ready to change the world, guys. Who's coming with me? If you only heard the first hour, I don't know what you're doing. Sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus because the full shows are always better. Nobody's doing what I'm doing. Instead of a massive bag of fun sized Snickers, get a month of THC Plus. It looks much better on your waistline. But in the extra time I had with Aaron, we talked about extra travel, how this could apply to crafts. We talked even about Aaron's UFO sightings that he's actually had. We talked about ether and G-forces. You can probably already conceive of what that means because we just talked about similar things like gravity and inertia. Really, we explain those things or redefine those things. But another... Topic we talked about in the Plus Show was Qigong, consciousness, and healing. And that was a long story, but it was quite awesome. A whole nother dimension of Aaron's interests and experiences that I really liked hearing about. Plus, when exceptional people pass on, it's nice to tell their story to so many listeners, and through that, they can still influence the world. And that's a beautiful thing. Also, tomorrow, or should I just say October 25th, we are doing another joint session with you, dear people. Me and you. Call in with your stories, your local conspiracies, your paranormal experiences, your inside scoops. And I'm going to be right here, ready to hear it all. 7 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Central. I'm really going to try and, quote, go live on Facebook and YouTube this time, because there's thousands of followers there. and When someone goes live, it's always something they throw to the front of my newsfeed. I think people would get the prompt and probably join in. I know the program I'm using, Zoom. I know it's able to do that. So my mission for the afternoon is to get liquored up again and give it a go. Figure that stuff out. I'm being quite goofy. But I am really proud of what we've done here today. If this resonates with you, please continue to explore these things that they just don't want us to know about. Give Aaron a shout out. Let him know you salute his dedication. Give him the digital high five. And I'm going to be back very soon. I love you guys. Lots of people out there are fishing for your outrage. Don't take the bait. But anyway, I've done my part. Thanks for listening. Your move, secret science suppressors, ether quarantiners, and keepers of convention. Your fucking move
1: i won't take it no i refuse if it's all right i'll keep my refuge i've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind got a transfer to the inner earth i built a box built a hole got a neat elevator going under and now you'll find me in the bunker
0: plans are simple. The best protection of all is the special shelter built according to specifications of your local civil defense organization. The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do?
1: Bunker, take it under. You'll find me in the bunker. Bunker, bunker, take it under. Bunker, bunker, take it under, find me in the bunker, bunker, plunder, it's a plunder, rape, pillage, and plunder, plunder, it's a plunder.